0: Three, two, one. Hit it. What? Reversal of fortune. That's why I tell my friends everything happens for seriously, a reason. Seriously, you had one job. I, just, I, I can't Jeez. with some of these people. I look down your goddamn cell phone. I code. Don't think my dad even knows how to use a computer. Uh, Would you rather? Right, trust me, take no, my but advice. seriously, that legit happened. Hamalom, that's hello. namaste, shalom, and welcome to Nervous Habits. I've got a, dare I say, divine episode in store for all of you, where we're going to be diving into religion in the modern digital age. We'll be looking at issues including, is adherence to religion fundamentally incompatible with science, or can you be a firm believer in both? Conventional wisdom might have you believe that religion has all but disappeared in the technology age, but has it? And finally, is it possible to find meaning in life without belief in any religion at all? All that and so much more on this week's episode of Nervous Habits. So guys, as you know, I record the podcasts anywhere from a couple of weeks to a couple of months in advance. So as I record this podcast now in middle middle of March, it's March 13th, you know, maybe it'll be released in early April, mid-April, but right now... And the reason why timing is is such a concern is because right now, we are in the midst of an unprecedented, an unprecedented pandemic that I've never seen in my lifetime. My parents have never seen. I don't know if we've ever seen this uh, with COVID-19, with the coronavirus. Pretty much all of society is in widespread panic mode, everyone is self-quarantined staying indoors. The effects that this outbreak has had on the world, on the economy, on government, on social norms, on ed- our education system, on consumerism, I mean, it really, it I've never seen anything like it. And I mean, just to get a sense of, you know, like with coronavirus, with what's taken place, you have, for the first time in history— you have the Major League Baseball season is is delayed. They canceled the remainder of spring training. They pushed back opening day about a month. So when this actually when this is released in April, I'm curious. You know, for all those listening, will baseball. You know, is baseball going to be played in April as you listen to this. Is is there baseball going on? The NBA season was suspended a couple of days ago. Um, the NHL season was suspended. The Boston Marathon was. I think postponed to June or canceled, which has never happened in 124 years. Coachella and Stagecoach, the music festivals, were canceled. South by Southwest was canceled. Broadway shows are going dark because of a policy in New York where Governor Cuomo recently announced that 500 people or more are no longer permitted in New York. Similar bans are in place for public gatherings in Washington, D.C. and most other large cities. Um, Film festivals are postponed. Movie uh, production has been stalled, as well as TV production, The Bachelorette um, postponement. Uh, In in their production, the Boston Marathon I mentioned, St. Patrick's Day parades, um, the English Premier League, Champions League, auto racing, pretty much all vacation resorts are closing. SeaWorld uh, conferences and summits and I'm I'm reading this off of, if you're curious, you know, I'm reading this off of uh, CBS News published um, a list of all the cancellations amid the uh, COVID-19 concerns. And I mean, in terms of, you know, the education system, public schools are closed, um, private colleges and law schools are moving to online and remote learning. I mean, this is, this is just, it's, incredible the ramifications that this has had. Businesses, I mean, people are working remotely. There's pretty much no face-to-face meetings happening right now. Everyone's moving to WFH. Work from home policies are being uh, instituted. In Italy, pretty much in Italy, you have the closure of every establishment with the exception of supermarkets and banks um, and, and, of course, hospitals and pharmacies. It's You know, I think Bill Gates in 2015, uh, I saw a a YouTube video where he announced that humankind was ill-prepared for an epidemic or a virus. Um, I know there was a book written by Sylvia Brown, End of Days, Predictions and Prophecies About the End of the World, where she actually wrote, you guys, in around 2020, a severe pneumonia-like illness will spread throughout the the globe, attacking lungs and bronchial tubes and resisting all known treatments. Almost more baffling than the illness itself will be the fact that it will suddenly vanish as quickly as it has arrived, attack again 10 years later, and then disappear completely. So people anticipated this, but I mean, we, we've we just been so ill-prepared. Our healthcare system, I mean, we, President Trump uh, refused to accept uh, world health organizations. I, I think they had at some point reached out about a vaccine and, and Trump refused it and now you know, there's varying reports on whether or not there is going to be a vaccine available within the next year. This could be the new normal. I mean, pretty much the, the complete disappearance of social, of, of any intersocial interfacing, like this is, and, and to some degree you're seeing the, you know, the virtues and the positive advantages of our technological society of Technology like Zoom, uh, you know, w- webcam, web interfacing systems, where it allows you to, you know, have meetings and conferences remotely. It allows me as a law student to attend lectures with my professors and office hours remotely. So I guess that's the silver lining: is we have some sort of mechanism in place. You know, we're not just sitting on our hands uh, for twenty-four hours a day, seven days a week for the next couple months. But it is. I mean, it is dark. It is depressing. It is scary. I don't know when this is going to get better. I mean, as a law student, pretty much they they told us that through the rest of our semester, we're going to be have, you know we're going to have these systems in place where we're not going to be allowed to come into class. Um, our exams are going to take place remotely, and I, as someone who kind of needs that in person learning i'm a little concerned about how this is going to impact my grades how this is going to impact my future job prospects i attended you know a uh, a recruiting networking event earlier in the week and one of the partners that spoke to us said that you know this is going to be looked at you know she had gone to school or rather she had applied to law firms during the the recession in 2008 and uh, the crisis that came with that. And she said that, you know, students right now that are applying to firms as as I'm going to be in the summer, you know, employers are going to look at this as the recession. There's going to be a shortage of jobs and it's going to be more competitive and, and it might help us, right? Because they could, you know, when they look at our grades, it, it might be with the context of knowing the conditions, you know, the adversities that, that we dealt with. But there's certainly that, that factor to worry about as well. So... For for schools and for jobs, the impact that the that COVID nineteen has had, um, also just social so, so, uh, excuse me social distancing as well, and how that's going to impact relationships, right? I mean, pretty much there's no more you know going out in large groups. Um, I don't know if bars and restaurants will stay open. Um, you know, it remains to be seen what's what's going to be the impact of that. I don't know. I mean, the Center for Disease Control and Prevention pretty much said that they advise against unnecessary social gatherings. So, are, you know, are we just supposed to stay home alone and self-quarantine for the next couple months? It's it remains to be seen. You know what, what, how we're gonna cope with this? I, you know, there was an article written the other day. Actually, there were a couple articles written about how. You know, Scientific American had something, How to Prevent Loneliness in a Time of Social Distancing. Um, Vox had an article, How Social Distancing for Coronavirus Could Cause a Loneliness Epidemic. I mean, as human beings, we need that social interaction. We need companionship. We need to surround ourselves with others. And if we're all just holed up in our apartment in quarantine, like, you know, you're going to have widespread depression. You're going to have anxiety. Um, The national. You know, morale is going to take a hit. The worldwide morale is going to take a hit. People are going to suffer. So, you know, social distancing is important. I mean, it's important to contain this. You know, all and and you know, I'm not a research, but uh, excuse, (laughs) I'm not an expert on this. But the literature that I have read indicates that if we distance ourselves now, we can contain this virus before it spreads, and kind of. You know, keep this under control at least in the short term to to prevent the death of tens of millions of of people but that being said the social distancing piece might be the new normal for a long time i i don't know you know when we'll be able to start going to basketball games again or, or broadway shows or you know going out with our friends to a bar crawl or to a party you know right now I mean, and look, I just, I just want to—I want to say, like, yes, obviously, some groups are more at risk than others. Like, if you're a young, relatively healthy twenty-something, maybe you don't have to worry about this. But the concern is is spreading to people with immunos, uh, you know, uh, immu- uh, autoimmune diseases, with chronic illnesses, or people of of advanced age. That's the concern is making sure it doesn't spread to them. So, you know, that being said, I don't, I, I don't know, I don't know. How this is going to play out? I I genuinely I don't know. I really I I really I really don't know, and I think no one knows, you know, because we haven't seen something like this. No one knows, you know, when this is going to get better, what the timeline is like, and and it's upsetting that we haven't had even adequate leadership during this excruciating critical time that, as I said, the World Health Organization had working tests that the U.S. refused, that there were researchers at a project in Seattle that tried to conduct early tests for the coronavirus, but they were prevented from doing so by federal officials, that the Trump administration essentially called the virus a hoax as recent as a week ago. That was the beginning of March. There's been an avalanche of false information. You know, the president did today declare a national emergency to try to redirect or rather unlock funds for use by federal agencies during this. but I think there was there was a good article from the Atlantic which I mean, it was titled uh, the Trump Preside- the Trump presidency is over by Peter Wenner and it essentially said that because of the horrendous leadership by the executive office of the presidency during this catastrophe, the nation has taken it upon itself to you know make decisions about how to proceed with the coronavirus. Um, they've essentially treated him as a bystander. Um, the article says the nation is recognizing that Trump is ill-equipped to deal with this treating him as a bystander as school superintendents, sports commissioners, college presidents, governors, and business owners across the country take it upon themselves to shut down much of American life without clear guidance from the president. And that's actually, I think, in the words of Peter Baker and Maggie Haberman of the New York Times. I mean, there hasn't been any in you know, direction from the president on how to proceed. I mean, why should there be? He's not... A public health expert. But that being said, you know, he should have heeded the warnings of the public health experts and, and, you know, our counterparts around the world who were, who made it pretty clear that this was a serious pandemic. Um, and so it's fallen on uh, Dr. Fauci, the government's most famous scientist to say publicly that the nation's sports leagues have to call off tournaments and that it's risky for people to be indoors right now in large groups so obviously I've devoted a lot of time to talking about this I mean it's it's on my mind I'm sure it's on your minds and it's it's not something that we can ignore I feel guilty you know if, if I come on the podcast and start talking about you know wh- whatever the topic of the day is in social psychology or te- technology because that's not what's going on in the world right now what's going on in the world the world is this this existential threat to humanity, and we can't just act like it's not happening. I mean, this has changed our lives, and this is going to change our lives for for years. And you know, we'll be telling our children, if I mean, obviously we hope everything goes well, but you know, maybe one day we'll look back and we'll say, you know, we lived. Our kids will be reading about the coronavirus in textbooks, asking, "What was it like? You know, is it true that when you went to the supermarket, all the toilet paper was gone?" and is it true that, you know, you had to take law school classes from, you know, inside your apartment on your laptop? Um and by the way, a note on that with the with the hoarding. People are just completely and and I do think it's good that that people are are taking this seriously and and stocking up, but um I was at the supermarket the other day and all of the the hand soap was gone. I mean, people are are hand sanitizer is just if you invested in Purell, you're you know, you're in good shape, but um, people are completely stocking up on toilet paper. All oh, the toilet paper was gone. The paper towels, um, which is ironic because you know if we're, if, if we're quarantined for a long time, I don't know if toilet paper is the the you know most important commodity that we'll need. But for some reason, people are stocking up on toilet paper, um, and a lot of non-perishables, canned foods. They were they were gone as well. Um, it's scary. This is this is a scary time, you guys. And in times like these hopefully i don't know if it helps to hear you know to hear me talk about this to hear you know to hear my voice to hear my take on it um i'm gonna try to as seamlessly as possible shift into the discussion of the day I know whew, I know that was it was heavy that was a lot to deal with and actually it kind of it kind of like folds pretty nicely into the you know, discourse about religion because it's it's a question of, is it possible to find meaning in life with religion or or that religion? Especially because, you know, at times like these and crises like these, you're really thinking about, you know, it puts things in perspective. If you're a law student like me and you're struggling to submit your moot court brief on time, if your biggest problem is, you know, you're worried about making time to stay up to date with outlining or you know, to one of your professors is upset with you because you made a common class or, you know, you're worried that your classmates don't think you're smart. It's, it puts things in perspective because now all of a sudden, you know, your parents, your grandparents might be at risk. And I, uh, I want to remind you, oh gosh, I think, I think I might have to, let me, let me, let me just, let me just take five. Let me get some water. Mm. Okay. I got some water. I got an Oreo. So, if we're all going to die, at least we should take solace in in our drunk food. That's another thing. This is the last thing I'm going to say. I'm going to promise I'll shift into the discussion. But um, I'm also thinking about the impact this is going to have on, like, individual fitness and, like, health regimens. Because none of us are going to be eating healthy for a while, you know, if we're eating out of— canned if we eat eating a lot of canned food and we're sedentary sitting on our computers all day long and also the gym i mean i'm not i don't know when i'm going to be able to go to the gym i don't even know if the gym is still going to be open but are like how are people going to stay fit that's that's a concern too anyway feel free to send me your thoughts your concerns your opinions on the covid19 epidemic where you think we go from here what You think the, you know, if there are any silver linings to this, um, to all of the cancellations, to social distancing, send me your thoughts, nervoushabitspodcast at gmail.com, nervoushabitspodcast at gmail.com, also on Twitter at nervoushabits underscore, on Instagram at nervoushabitspodcast, and on YouTube search nervoushabitspodcast. So I touched on religion in episode nine um, in the context of predestination and fate. Just, I mean, you could, you can, you know, kind of listen to that episode, but that was more about, Is there, you know, whether or not my friend and I subscribe to the belief that all of our life was pre-written before we were born, which is kind of a religious ideology. I also talked about it in episode 13 in the context of death, and that was more about how religion for a lot of people offered a sense of of uh, comfort and consolation um, when we think about our death or when we repress our fear of death, and you can kind of listen to to that episode separately, but to be honest, I wouldn't listen to it right now because it's a very dark, dark listen, and it's kind of amazing that this is a pod that's pretty heavy on philosophy and existentialism and metacognition, and it's taken me, you know, like 35 episodes to get around to talking about religion in depth because if you think about it, the concept of religion kind of defies reason. The idea that we're gonna group people both internally and externally based on just what they believe in. You know, this person is considered Jewish, this person's Catholic, this person's Muslim, just because of the belief system they have, I mean, nothing actually makes them inherently different. You know, much like someone's race or ethnicity or gender, you can't actually affect the religion you were born with. I mean, if you're, you know, born Hindu or or Buddhist or Christian, it's completely out of your control. But we as a society, we place so much emphasis on the religion that someone practices. You know, it'd be like if someone preferred air conditioning to fans and it's like, you know, you you're, you tell your mom, you know, I'm dating this girl and she's like, oh, you can't date that girl. She's she's an air conditioner. She's not a fanner. It's like, that, <laughs> that's essentially what it is. I mean, it's just someone's like subjective and a lot of times predetermined belief system um, or lack thereof, and, and yet a lot of people ostracize each other based on it and I mean we'll, we'll get into that afterwards when we talk about the implications and, and the construction of religion, but just to kind of hit some you know throw some numbers at you, there are roughly forty three hundred religions in the world, which to me was startling because if you know if this was family feud and we had to name religions, I could name maybe like ten to fifteen, and that's it. Um, most of these are unknown to you and unknown to me. And in terms of the most common religions and their number of believers, uh, these stats are courtesy of the Pew Research Center. Christianity, uh, 2.2 billion people. Islam, 1.5 billion. Non-religious, which means agnostic, atheist, or secular, that's 1.2 billion. Hinduism is 1.1 billion. Buddhism, 5, 535 million. Uh, Chinese tradition, religion, 394 million. Primal indigenous, 300 million. Then you have African diaspora and tradition, one hundred million, Sikhism, thirty million, and Jewish, nineteen million. And then other notable religions in the top twenty. Judaism, fourteen million. It's amazing that that there's, you know, so few Jewish people and maybe it's because so many of them live in america and you know live in northeast and go on to careers in the media and and you know you no know, they're well represented in all these fields that we know a lot of jewish people but yeah 14 million jewish people compared to 2.2 billion christian it's it's you know a pretty wide uh, discrepancy um what else do we have here in the top 20 not a lot of other but Jainism 4.2 million unitarian universalism 800,000 and all of these religions, or many of them, have have subdivisions. So you have, like, when I say Christianity, that doesn't just mean everyone's you know belongs to the same sect. Uh, you could have Roman Catholics, Protestants, Eastern Orthodox, Greek Orthodox, Anglican, and there's all these sub denominations. Muslims uh, can be either Sunni, the majority, uh, Shiite, um, Abadi, uh, Sufi, A- A- Ahmadiyya, Ahmadiyya, uh Hinduism, you have four main groups. You have Shaivism, Shaktism, Smartism, and Vaishnavism. Then there's two main traditions in Buddhism, uh, Theravada and Mahayana, each with subgroups. Jews can be orthodox, conservative, or reform. And according to Pew Research Center, Islam is the fastest growing religion in the world, more than twice as fast as the overall global uh, population between twenty fifteen and twenty sixty, the world's inhabitants are expected to increase by thirty-two percent, but the Muslim population is forecasted to grow by seventy percent. So as you can see, even in twenty twenty, you still have you still have this, this omnipresence of these religion these religious groups across the world. And as you see with, with Islam, they don't appear to be slowing down anytime soon. Now you might be wondering what qualifies as a religion. Can anyone create a religion? I mean, is 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 there some minimum number of followers? Is there minimum number of years that it needs to be practiced? Does it need to be codified? You know, if I have a belief system where I worship avocado toast and I get all my friends to sign on with me, is that an official religion? So the definition of religion is actually a little bit of a controversial su- uh, subject in academia or, or religious scholarship, um, people fail to agree on any one definition. Generally, religion requires some organized collection of beliefs, cultural systems, and worldviews, but that's about it, and that's a very you know open definition or requirement that all it needs is an organized collection of beliefs, cultural systems, and worldviews. And there have been a bunch of religious cases, religious cases, there have been a bunch of cases that have gone before the Supreme Court um, about the First Amendment, which uh, the freedom of religion, which contains the Establishment Clause, that the government cannot endorse any one religion, and Free Exercise Clause, the government can't prohibit the free exercise of religion. And the court has again and again defined religion as sets of beliefs in relation to a person and his creator. But that—that's the only guideline that the Supreme Court, from a legal perspective, has used to say what religion is. So there are no minimum thresholds, and you could th- theoretically create your own religion. And in fact, you know, in doing some research for the episode, I kind of, you know, went online and, and went down the rabbit hole and discovered that there are a lot of unusual religions that are that do have a fair number of followers. You have uh, co- copism or copism which is an internet religion whose central tenet is that file sharing is sacred. K-O-P-I-M-I-S-M if you want to look that up. There's also the Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster or Pastafarianism, which is officially recognized by the New England, New Zealand government, but not the Dutch or the English. Uh, you have Terasem, which is a trans religion that believes that death is optional and that there is a technological god and uh, Terrasem is T E R A S E M and these are real religions you know if you don't believe me you can you can look those up um in 2016 the temple of the Jedi Order mem- members of which follow the tenets of the faith central to the Star Wars films failed in its effort to be recognized as a religious organization under UK charity law um, and in the last two censuses Jedi has been the most popular alternative religion with more than 176,632 people describing themselves as Jedi Knights on the 2011 census, and what's interesting is that was in 2011. That was before you know the the new reboot of the Star Wars trilogy with The Force Awakens and all, all, all those all those films. So now in 2020, you might have even more people <laughs> who identify as Jedi Knights. But I mean, I like I don't know. I don't see why the Jedi Order can't be a religion. It's there's clearly uh, well-established doctrine. It's it's canon. It's online for what you know. Jedi stands for. Um, you know what the Jedi Knights stand for and, and what their ideologies are. Who cares if it you know was created in in a movie in a fictional fictional universe? That's what religion is. I mean, it, religion is essentially just just writings and beliefs that people codify and people share. So the jedi religion is no you know no less real than, than you know christianity and judaism um so if people want to believe that if people want to practice that if people want to be one with the force and practice light and darkness you know all the power to them that sounds like a completely legitimate religion to me contrary to the the united kingdom's charity laws and in fact i wonder if we could conceptualize if if i can conceptualize right now march 13th 2020 6:14 p.m. if i could think up a religion that I might want to practice that you know I might um want people to follow me on. I mean I'm I'm an avid water drinker. It could be a habitual water religion. I guess that doesn't sound good. It could be religion of people who are habitual water drinkers who drink two or three times the recommended daily consumption of water. Um it could be religion of compulsive nail biters, people that believe the central tenet is that Nail biting is the key to self soothing and to achieving, you know, center of of being. Could also be just a religion of baseball, you know, uh, uh, that the game of baseball prescribes the rules for life, like uh, like Buddhism, like the Eightfold Path, uh, um, the Four Noble Truths. You could have in baseball, you know, thou <laughs> thou shalt not make the last out at third base, or um, thou shalt not. Throw a breaking ball on a three-two count. Thou shalt exercise good sportsmanship and maybe make analogies to everyday life. I'm not sure. I'll, I'll think about it. Maybe by the end of the episode, I'll have a, a good religion idea. Or if you have ideas, please please send them to me. gmail.com, Twitter, Instagram, yada yada. All right. So, believe it or not, guys, religion is still going strong in the modern age. And that for me was was kind of a start, a staggering realization, you know, in doing my research because. In the last decade, you know, you see all the contemporary literature in, in sociopolitical, um, you know, in those areas. Robert Putnam's bowling Alone," the death of community, how people don't, you know, aren't a part of groups and clubs and um, conventions to the, gr- the degree that they once were. How people are addicted to technology, and especially right now with you know the, the quarantine, the coronavirus, people are just um, sitting at home. You know, fewer and fewer people are going to, to church functions and to Online to, you know, uh, organizing in that way. But according to an article by The Guardian in August of 2018, 84% of the world's population identifies with a religious group. So somehow, some way, people are still observing religion. Now, that might be disparate from what I'm saying because that might just be identification with a religious group, not actively practicing, right? Like I can identify as a vegetarian but, you know, eat meat as a staple of my diet, right? Like maybe they're not actively observing, but they identify, 84% identify with the religious group. Um, so at least internally, their belief systems align with some of the religions I mentioned earlier. The, the Guardian uh, mentioned that members of this demographic are generally younger and produce more children than those who have no religious affiliation. Um, therefore, logically speaking, You have more people being born who are religious than non-religious if they're having more children and they're younger. And we'll actually get into trends later in the episode where we look at how our engagement with religion has changed in 2020 and how it might change in the future. Um, we will look at you know the role that technology and social media have played, but kind of just want to establish that people today are still religious, contrary to, to what I believed and what you probably believed as well. And what you also have today, perhaps more than ever, is this idea of religious conversion, which is changing from one religion to another. According to the Pew Research Center, religious switching or religious conversion is a common occurrence in the United States. Um, depending on how exactly religious switching is defined, whether it's you know changing a completely different religion from Judaism to Buddhism or changing sex, um, uh sex S-E-C-T-S, sects, um, as many as 42% of US adults have switched religions in their lifetime. And that 42% does count switching between Protestant traditions, even if Protestantism is regarded as a single group. Um, And so about a third of Americans, 34%, identify with a different religious group than the one in which they were raised. And that sort of begs the question, why do people switch religions? I mean, you know, if if you're born a certain way, if you're, if your lifestyle, you know, your upbringing is in a, a Muslim household, why, you know, why would you switch? And there's there's a number of, of uh, reasons that uh, were cited in the Pew Research study. One of them is active conversion by free choice due to a change in beliefs. This is when people believe something differently than they did when they were raised, and you probably see this a lot because of the access to information nowadays. You know, there's there's so much there's so much Divergent, so many divergent opinions, divergent literature out there, presenting viewpoints that maybe you didn't have access to when you were younger. Let's say you grew up in a strict um, Roman Catholic household, and you thought that the world was only, you know, was framed the way that your parents taught you. And then you grow up, and and you're exposed to a lot of literature about being agnostic and being atheist, and that sort of perspective, that might definitely shift your ideologies. Later in life, and I would venture to guess that for a lot of young people who are more liberal, more progressive, um, who are maybe science oriented, they might identify as atheist or agnostic. Uh, and I don't know if that involves an official, you know, switch or conversion, but at least they might identify as atheist, even though they grew up, you know, twenty years ago uh, or, or whatnot, as uh, identifying, you know, with their family's religion. So the first re- uh, reason why people switch is free choice due to change of beliefs. Then you also have marital conversions where people convert um, for their partner. In some religions, I-, I can only speak from a Jewish perspective. In some religions, it's, I mean, it's not it's not forced, is not required, but it's certainly encouraged that the non-Jewish partner converts to Judaism. It depends on the sect, obviously, that it's more important in Orthodox, the Orthodox sect than in the Reform sect. Um, But certainly, you know, you see all the time if, if, you know, the person's family is strict and religious, the person who's more secular might convert for that reason. Then you also have deathbed conversions, people who adopt a different religious faith before dying. So if you or secular or atheist, and then, you know, you on your deathbed, and you're concerned about um, the afterlife and ramifications, you might, uh, you see this sometimes have a priest or, or the chaplaincy come and, and um, convert you on your deathbed. You know, and, and as I said, it does happen a lot where atheists try to convert to Christianity, for example, and some sects don't allow it, you know, depending on the stringency of of that sect or that priest or or whoever's would be conducting the conversion. Some people just wouldn't allow it. Um, but that's, that's another reason why people would convert. And then you have forced conversions where someone adopts another religion, uh, out of duress. Um, someone who has been forced to convert might covertly hold internally their old beliefs, but outwardly behave as a convert. So that's the main reason why, um, people switch religions. And, you know, i I think that all of those reasons are obviously legitimate i think I think that converting because of free choice due to a change in beliefs is probably the easiest to justify because it shows that you arrived at the conclusion that you want to identify, you want to be accepted as a member of that religious sect rather than in the other examples, you're doing it as a means to an end, either to get into the afterlife or you know to be accepted by someone's family um so I think that when a person switches religions following a careful consideration following research following speaking with people following like a re-examination of their entire worldview that's completely sensible to me but I I mean I'm not I'm not an, an a scholar or I, it would have been interesting actually I know we're like halfway through the episode but it would have been interesting to have someone on the pod to speak about this who might have might have like a theological background, but alas. Now, with all this being said, you might be wondering where religion comes from. And I don't mean that in a literal sense. I don't mean that in like, tell me, you know, what you learned in Sunday school about, uh, you know, how Moses received the Bible from God on Mount Sinai. I don't don't think that's, actually, I might (laughs) might have to strike that. I don't mean, look, what I mean is, is religion a human construct or is it a thing in and of itself, if that makes sense? Is religion something that actually exists, or is religion something that we create? And I don't mean I don't mean to impose a secular perspective on this conversation, but it's more I, I kind of touched on this in episode 13 when I went into the discussion of death. But just to kind of like reiterate how I feel about this, I think just prudentially speaking. At its simplest form, religion is essentially the embodiment of humility. This was a big part of my discussion um, uh, on death. And, you know, religion is the acknowledgement of something greater than yourself. Religion is selflessness. Religion is relinquishing control, knowing that you have no power. And you know, you're just you're just a vessel for something greater than yourself, for spirit, for soul, for essence, whatever whatever you believe in. I think all of the religions that I've spoken about thus far would agree that that's really the the overriding principle of religion. And consequentially, religion is also comfort. It reminds me of the movie The Invention of Lying with uh, Ricky Gervais. And it really, it, it wasn't a great movie. It's it's like amazing that on, uh, you know, an intense, um, academic uh, podcast episode, I'm like mentioning this this like cheesy comedy movie. But it did have an interesting observation about religion. Essentially, if you haven't seen it, the movie depicts a world where it is physically impossible to lie, and people walk around spewing truths to each other. So you go on a date with someone, and she tells you, you know, your shirt makes you look fat, and You know, she's not attracted to you because of your looks and your failing financial situation. Um, So that's, you know, that's like the day-to-day in this, I I guess, dystopia. Is it a dystopia? Some might argue it's a utopia, but it's a fictional universe. And in this movie, the main character, uh, whose name is Mark, and he's played by Ricky Gervais, he goes to the hospital because his mother has a heart attack and she's dying. And the mother is just shuddering with fear and she's, you know, telling her son, uh, Ricky Gervais, telling her son that she she doesn't want to die and she's really scared. What's going to happen next? And Mark, to comfort her, he just tells her, he says, that after death, there's this beautiful afterlife. And, you know, it's going to be where she reunites with all of her her friends and family. And actually, let me see if if I can pull up the monologue because it 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 is kind of beautiful. So he says to her, so the mother... I'm going to step back. So the mother says, I'm so scared, Mark. I don't want to die. People don't talk about it much, but death is a horrible thing. One minute you're alive. There's a whole world around you humming and jumping, people coming in and out, doors opening and closing, love and anger and the whole mess of it all. And then like that, it's all gone. And she starts crying and she says, this is it. Only a few more hours until an eternity of nothingness. And Mark says, listen closely to me, grandma. Grandma, I thought this was his mom. Uh, Oh, it's his grandmother. Okay. Um, He says, You're wrong about what happens when you die. It's not an eternity of nothingness. When you die, you're going to go to your favorite place in the whole world. And you're going to be with all of the people you've ever loved and who ever loved you. And you're going to be young again. And you'll be able to run through the fields and dance and jump. And there'll be no sadness, no pain, just love and laughing and happiness. There will be ponies made of gold. And everyone will live in giant mansions and everything will smell like cookies And it will last for an eternity, Grandma. An eternity. And he says, You're going to be happy forever, Grandma. I promise you. Say hello to my mom for me. Tell her I love her. And essentially, what ends up happening in this film, so so he delivers that monologue and his grandmother passes away. People begin to find out about this information that Mark told his grandmother. And Mark, you, you know, I starts telling people about this this man in the sky who controls everything. And if you're a good person, he says you go to heaven. He doesn't use the word heaven, but he essentially says like you go this to this to this place. And people begin believing in what essentially amounts to a religion that Ricky Gervais's character spreads. In this world where you can only tell the truth, he essentially invents lying because of, you know, through this, through this notion of religion. And I guess the movie, I don't know if if it was controversial, but if you're listening to this and you are, you are a person of faith, you know, maybe you object to the classification of religion in this context as lying. I don't think, I don't know if the movie intentionally meant to imply that Gervais was lying. I think that the movie depicts sort of an atheist view of religion as just this thing that we use for comfort that his grandmother was dying he wanted to make her feel better he shared you know these anecdotes and then eventually disseminated through society i don't think the movie suggesting that you know religion is a fabrication i think it's it's saying that whether you believe in religion or not whether you believe that religion is is something that is inherently real that the, these beliefs you know in the afterlife or in judgment day even if you ascribe to that, you know religion still has enormous pragmatic value to people as something that makes us feel better in times of distress. I mean, look at look at the coronavirus right now. People are probably clinging to their religion for for answers, for for you know to feel better, for reassurance. And so I look. It's not it's not a great movie. I, I can't believe I'm, I'm I've spent like this long talking about it, but it it is it is interesting when you look at religion as a human construct, kind of through that lens. It, you know, it also kind of leads me to, to, to ponder, in the future, in, you know, with, the, with the advance of technology and AI, if robots eventually assume power, so to speak, and become sentient or omniscient, would they have their own forms of, of, of religion? When I say that religion is a human construct, what I'm curious about is whether or not other entities, other beings can believe in religion. I mean and and I think when I talked about um uh what was it? the the matrix whether we're living in a simulation that machines would become the new gods in in a matrix like universe and we we might have a religion involving machine. I mean it's all very like speculative. It's also semantics. I mean maybe maybe it wouldn't be called religion but we would just it'd be kind of like a social hierarchy, but that's not really religion. I mean, religion, it's so arbitrary. And maybe there's something in humanity that's compelled us to create religion. Because, as I said, we need to believe in something that is greater than ourselves, some higher purpose, some deeper meaning. And if you don't believe in religion, and, and I, actually, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pocket that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put that in my pocket, and we're going to go back to it later. But I do want to get into the central question of this episode, which is, is it possible to be deeply religious and still believe in the sciences. Because intuitively you have to believe that the answer is yes. You have to believe that it is possible to be deeply religious and believe in the sciences. I mean, I just mentioned earlier 84% of people in 2020 identify with some religious group internally. And surely most of these people went to grade school, they believe in the scientific method, they learned about the periodic table of elements, they learned about the parts of the cell and the anatomy of the human body. They Adherence to science. Right? So, how can they believe in both religion and science? It has to be possible. So, Jerry Coyne is the author of a book called Faith versus Fact Why Science and Religion Are Incompatible. And he actually argues that religion is inherently irreconcilable with science. He says that you cannot possibly believe in one and also believe in the other. And when Coyne lays out his argument, and he he makes a really good case here. He says that religion and science are incompatible because, first of all, both of them compete to find out truths about the universe. There are some fundamental truths about the universe that believers have to accept in order to be religious. These are foundational. Many Muslims, for example, see the Quran as literally true. And if you question any of that, you bring a death sentence onto yourself. The reason why people are so concerned with harmonizing science and religion as opposed to, say, science and architecture or science and baseball is because science and religion are competitors in this field of esoteric truths about the cosmos. But, you know, Coin says that we use different methods to ascertain what's true. Science has a refined series of methods honed over 500 years to find out what's real and what's false. But religion, it doesn't have a methodology to weed out what's false, you know, there's authority, uh, revelation, there's dogma and indoctrination as methods. But there's no real way of proving tenets to be false. And this gets into kind of a tangential discussion we could have about faith, where like um, and actually I took I did take a class. I know I I said I wasn't an expert in religion, but I did take a class on philosophy of religion in college, and we talked a lot about this, about this notion of of how faith is not verifiable and not falsifiable. And if it was if we if we could prove the existence of God or or we could prove the existence or, or the you know truth behind religion wouldn't that defeat the point of religion? I'm I'm not necessarily disagreeing with Coin, but I wonder kind of presenting this as a counter argument isn't the fact that there's no fundamental truth there's no truth finding mechanism behind religion doesn't that just add to the to the meaning of religion isn't that what sets religion apart? I guess he's looking at this from a secular perspective, and he's saying that, you know, as, as I just said, so, like science. He's, he's it's funny. He's looking at this like a scientist, um, but he's saying that science has a series of methods to find out what's real. Religion doesn't. And what's what's also true, and and this is a great point. There are thousands and thousands of religions, and all of them make incompatible claims about the universe. If the Muslims are right, or rather if Islam's right about, you know, the, how, how the world started, then Judaism can't be right, and then Buddhism can't be right, and then Hinduism. Like, these religions are fundamentally incompatible. And the reason why that's the case is because, as Coin says, you can't believe in both religion and science. And Coin kind of takes it to an extreme degree. He says that religion is the most widespread and harmful form of superstition, which I think is severely minimizing what these religions are to a lot of people. I I don't know that they would classify them as superstitions, but there is some merit to what he's suggesting when you look at the contradictions here. And the data shows that creationism, for example, this is the best example. This is something that you've heard a lot of, and it's obviously at the forefront of political debates, but creationism is at odds with evolution. So according to a Gallup poll from July of last year, 40% of U.S. adults ascribe to a strictly creationist view of human origins. They believe that God created them in their present form within roughly the past 10,000 years. However, more Americans continue to think that humans involved over millions of years, either with God's guidance, that's 33% of Americans, or increasingly without God's involvement at all, that's 22% of Americans. So, So people do believe educated people do believe that humans of that kind of in opposition to darwin's belief system humans evolved with god's guidance um i mean I, I to be honest i don't know how to how to how to square this data it's a little bit confusing how it was pre- presented but a lot of 40 percent of people believe in creationism um as opposed to evolution because creationism if you don't know, is the belief that the universe and living organisms originate from acts of divine creation rather than by natural processes such as evolution. Evolution, Darwin's idea, is that the human race gradually changed over generations through the process of natural selection, the survival of the fittest, right? Um, One is not compatible with the other. And you see this this conflict play out in school classrooms. Deeply religious schools remove any mention of religion from their textbooks and focus on teaching, teaching creationism. And most public schools, maybe all, um, to my knowledge, teach evolution. Although, and this is this is you know another um, you know area where you see excessive entanglement with politics, where politicians are saying that in you know religious areas, maybe in the deep South, um, in those communities, there should be mentions of creationism, or maybe there shouldn't be mentioned. And, and that's that's a whole other debate. You can talk about states' rights and federalism, but you know it's it's difficult to ignore the fact that. If you believe in creationism, how do you square that with a belief in evolution? Now, on the other hand, there is an argument that religious religion is compatible with science because many of history's most esteemed sciences were internally deeply religious for whatever reason. You know, the father of the Big Bang Theory was actually a Catholic priest. The pioneer of modern generics was an Augustinian monk and the decoder of the human genome converted, he was one of those people who converted from atheism to Christianity in his twenties. so, you know, some scientists find a way to balance the two. And the astrophysicist Jennifer Wiseman, she, she published an interesting article where she kind of talked about how she was able to reconcile these these interests. And she essentially said that while science is a wonderful tool for understanding the physical universe, Wiseman's religious beliefs give her the answers to the bigger philosophical questions in life, like how mere humans can be significant at all in the context of the universe. And she believes that her scientific uh, work actually deepens her faith. She says that God's responsible for everything, so by studying more of nature, you're enriching your understanding of God. Which, that's sort of an interesting sidestep. She's arguing that because God created everything when you're studying nature you're studying god's creations but that's like a non sequitur that's like not getting at the issue but that's be that as it may that's how Wiseman, the astrophysicist is able to um balance a belief in science and belief in religion and this this one makes more sense to me so there's an immunologist andrew Harmon, who um who in this same publication talked about how a specific religion was more conducive to having a belief in science and a belief in this religion. And that's Buddhism. And this makes a lot of sense to me because he says, Andrew Harman says, science is about learning. Buddhism is about living. So Buddhism, Harmon says, is interested in creating the conditions for enlightenment to arrive, a state in which people feel unconditional love, deep spiritual peace, and completely free of inner conflict. So it does make sense to me it makes. I think Harmon's argument makes more sense than Wiseman's in that if you believe in a religion like Buddhism that doesn't have worshiping a deity as its central tenet, that's more about achieving inner peace and and living a meaningful spiritual existence. That to me is more conducive with a belief in science. But you know, for the monotheistic or polytheistic. Um, actually, I think Buddhism for the monotheistic religions. I, I'm just I'm just not sure how how those two are able to coexist, and you know, is there a compromise? I mean, is there a way of thinking about religion and science that they don't overlap? And evolutionary bi- biologist Stephen Jay Gold, he actually developed a theory that he hoped would catch on um, to help these two competing sets of beliefs coexist. And the theory was known as NOMA. Um, not to be confused with, with NOMA, the area where I live in DC. Um, NOMA non-overlapping magisteria. And NOMA is a theory in which science encompasses the domains of facts about the universe, while religion deals with the realm of meaning and moral values. So under NOMA, science contains facts. So so science is the authority with facts. Religion is the authority with meaning and moral values, which is kind of uh, what Harmon did with Buddhism. Science is about learning Buddhism about living. Noma never really caught on, and I can see why. I mean, if religion was just about, you know, only about meaning and moral values, I think it would be more easily understood and and less widely criticized in, in certain respects But I think one of the reasons why secular and, and, you know, science-oriented people criticize religion is because it purports to suggest a different origin of the universe, a different set of circumstances, you know, instead of the Big Bang Theory, God, you know, God created the universe. So you can't say, as Gold has said, that science governs facts and religion governs meaning because that's, I don't think religious people would agree with that. And NOMA, you know, it has, it has been sharply criticized uh, the academic richard dawkins essentially said that you can't divorce religion from sciences from scientific matters and he noted it is completely unrealistic to claim as gold and many others do that religion keeps itself away from science's turf restricting itself to morals and values a universe with a supernatural presence would be a fundamentally and qualitatively different kind of universe than one without. The difference is inescapably a scientific difference. I want to read that again. A universe with a supernatural presence would be a fundamentally and qualitatively different kind of universe than one without. The difference is inescapably a scientific difference. So this is essentially why I think, I think Dawkins nails it. This is essentially why I think religion and science cannot coexist. At some point, if you're a serious adherent to religion, a serious follower of Christianity or Judaism or Islam, at some point you're going to ask the fundamental questions. Where did we come from? What is our purpose? Where are we going? What does our future hold? And those are not all meaning questions. Those are fact questions. And it's, it's, you know, I'm with Daw. It's pretty much impossible to reconcile the two. But I mean, we certainly have to try because you like you can't deny the reality, the the impact of science. It's mathematics and science that's the bedrock of all of you know scholarship and and um, just the collection of human knowledge is dependent on, on a belief in the scientific method. So you can't deny science and religion does have a place in our society as well. And I'm certainly not as religious, not as observant as I want to be, but I am a practicing Jew. I, I, I do consider myself maybe not deeply religious, but observant, of religion in, in some respects. And so I guess the way that I reconcile it is as, as co- contradictory as it is kind of compartmentalizing um, as much as is possible, you know, the answer to this question is a science, this is a scientific question. It has a scientific answer. This is a religious question. This is a religious answer. And I know that you might be listening to this and say, wait a second, isn't that what Stephen Gold said in, the answer is yes, but I I don't see until we have a better method. I don't I don't know how else we can do it. And, and if you have any ideas on this, please let me know because I it's it's really interesting and it's something we could talk about for a lot longer. But um, that's that's the best that I can do at least internally. Now I kind of re- alluded earlier. I, I was talking about how eighty four percent of people identify re- with religion in twenty twenty at least internally. And then I said I mentioned how externally, they might not practice it because you don't have, um, by and large, with you know the shift to virtual, you don't have as many people in church or traditional means of religious worship. And, you know, the, let, let's talk about the positive impact that technology has had on religion, because I feel like we always, <laughs> I always start out like negative and critical. You know, let, let's be positive for a change, especially in these ominous times. So, in a typical week, about one in five Americans shares their faith online. This is about the same as the number of people who tune into religious talk radio, watch religious TV programs, or listen to Christian rock music. So, you do have, there is a utility to social media and social networking platforms in that it helps people organize and assemble and, you know, helps to spur discourse and. People are being educated and gaining access to new uh, new information on religion. Maybe if you're interested in a religious switch or conversion, like I mentioned, and you you know you're in that first category, people that wants information, this could be you know useful for you. You have rabbis and priests posting Facebook statuses, sharing encouraging words to community members. Um, some of them are offering services remotely with webcam or Skype or Facebook Live or Instagram Live um, sessions for people that can't attend in person worship. People are connecting with each other, I mentioned, um, on social networking platforms, maybe on dating apps, you know, Christian Mingle or uh, J-Date. People are actually meeting with this shared, you know, base of of faith. And technology is definitely aiding, as I said, not just how people get their information, but how they're connecting with others, how they're making friends, maybe making contact. So there are positive um, developments to that, And, and, and I think it's important to recognize that You know, contrary to what I thought, contrary to maybe what you thought before listening to the pod, religion has been in some ways a boon in the digital age. But I would argue that despite what the numbers suggest, that most of us have some religious beliefs, I would argue that at our core, I think many of us, many of us struggle with our religious identities in the digital age because to be religious means... To be afraid. I mentioned earlier that religion is about humanity. Humidity. Religion is about being human. Religion is about humility. Religion is about recognizing some something greater than yourself. The idea that there is one entity that will judge your actions. You, you've all heard this idea of Judgment Day. There's been movies based on it. In some Christian denominations, and I believe Muslim denominations as well, there is this final and infinite judgment by God of the people in every nation, resulting in the approval of some and the penalizing of others. And when that day arrives, those who sinned will pay for their sins and those who live virtually will be will be rewarded. I know that people might believe this in a in a literal sense. They might like know this to be true, but I don't think people believe this internally. Because if people really thought that their actions would be judged one day, I don't know. I think people would live more kind existences. People wouldn't do hateful or cruel things to each other, or at least not as often as they do today people would be more considerate. I think we'd live in a better world. I mean, I think of The Good Place, the the show, um, uh, one, of, one of my favorite shows, actually, that's on right now, um, and how they had a point system for weighing the actions of every person in the world to determine if they go to the good place or the bad place. Um, I don't know. I just don't know if people really believe in that because if they did, I think people would be more self-aware and less selfish. And... Technology and media have made us all self-absorbed and narcissistic, and image-oriented and focused on the superficial things—the things that religion tells us not to care about. Religion, you know, tells you know talks about the importance of the soul and your spirit and how you know in the afterlife, you know, this this human body, this temporary vessel, is going to be shed. Yet you have people who are living and dying based on uh, you know, the lighting on their Instagram photo and their story, and based on you know. The number of, of comments on a Facebook status, and you know how many people responded going to their event, I mean we are all you know this has been a theme for me. we were all so narcissistic, and I just it 's hard for me to imagine people if they really internalized this this selflessness to their existence, people really having that that humility that religion requires and another reason why I think people are less religious or at least younger people. Is I don't think that people are as close with their parents anymore. I think that because our time is in such high demand and there's so many distractions, there's so many, so much stimuli that we have to filter out. You know, people aren't sitting at the dinner table having conversations with their parents about their days anymore. People aren't letting their parents in. You know, I think the social group. Um, is more of an influence now than it was at least when I was a kid, and parents are foundational for a lot of reasons to a child's upbringing. But one of them is they pass on religion. They pass on, you know, mo- most people are observant or not observant because their their parents are. You know, they they learn. Your parents raise you to be Orthodox Jewish, and you go on to raise your family, and they're probably going to be Orthodox Jewish. But because young people don't spend that time or have that close relationship with their parents, they probably have a diminished sense of religious identity. So I think that, you know, honestly, yeah, there are positive developments that religion has yielded in the digital age, but I think there's been more, more bad than good. On that note, you know, one last question I want to leave you guys with, if you're, especially if you're atheist or agnostic, and this is a question I posted at the outset, uh is there meaning in life without religion? Because the atheist Jerry Coyne, who I mentioned earlier, he sounds like a real fun guy, right? He says that all religion is superstition and that we live in a purposeless, purely physical universe in which human life is accidental and human consciousness is a neuronal illusion. We live in a purposeless, purely physical universe in which human life is accidental and human consciousness is a neuronal illusion so we we're, we're just born by accident god didn't create you or me um you know it's accidental and what we think to be consciousness is just an illusion i mean this is this is as dark and nihilistic as it gets it's a vision that there's absolutely nothing beyond the laws of physics and matter and this can be de- uh, this can be sad this can be deeply unsettling. This can drive you to hedonism, to living fast and dying hard, a life of pursuing purely sensual pleasures, you know, ravaging yourself with consumption and and sex and and drugs and riding the wave of dopamine rushes. Because there's nothing else there, according to Jerry Coyne. But, 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 If he's right, if we do live in this purely physical universe with accidental human life and consciousness being a neuronal illusion, it might make you appreciate the things in life that do bring you satisfaction. It might make you appreciate the unconditional affection of a puppy. It might make you appreciate the taste of a soft-baked chocolate chip cookie or the goosebumps that you get when your team has a come from behind win in the bottom of the ninth inning or the exhilaration of walking into a surprise party for your birthday with all your loved ones there. I mean, there's some things in life that are still worth appreciating even in an atheist world. Family and friendship and and love and happiness. That being said, I do think that religion is a choice. I do think that faith is a choice. Even if it's a human construct. Even if it's incompatible with science. Even if it makes no sense. Even if it defies reason. I do think you have to believe in something greater than yourself. And that might not be God. You know, religion to you might be being spiritual. It might be being one with nature. Not all religions involve belief in God. But... I think there's so much meaning in life when you when you believe in something greater than yourself, when you believe that your actions are building towards something greater than just your lifetime. You know, we talked about in denial of death, legacy building, the idea that all of life is about creating circumstances that will subsist beyond your lifetime. And I mean, that could be another solution to this atheist dilemma you know Coin's idea of like what's what's the point of, of living legacy building is pretty important to be to be remembered you know to to make an impact to make the world a better place to leave it better than where you know to leave the world in better condition than where you came from so I, I do think that it's easy to look at this dilemma and take that that hedonist way out but there are, there are other facets to life here, even if you don't subscribe to a religious ideology. We covered a lot of ground here in this long-awaited discussion of religion. So we talked about the 4,300 religions in the world, um, including the plasticity of what qualifies as a religion, some real religions that you probably didn't know about and how there's really no minimum thresholds or minimum or follows for religion. We talked about how religion is going strong in the digital age and the positive advantages that have come with technology in access to information and organizing people, um, connecting with others to Religion, and we talked about the negatives in how technology has made us more narcissistic and less humble, uh, less conducive to religion. We talked about religious conversion and the reasons why people are, you know, might potentially look to change religions from what they were born into. We also mentioned how religion is a human construct that really goes to um, our need to be selfless and, you know, part of something greater than ourselves. We also talked about how religion is fundamentally incompatible with science creationism versus evolution being the one example and how theories like NOMA, non-overlapping magisteria, are inadequate solutions to this problem. There is really no, no compromise. And then we talked about, um, in response to Coyne's suggestion that a life without religion is utterly meaningless existence, we talked about how there are things in life, in the present and in the future, that are worth living for even if you are an atheist or an agnostic. Next time on the pod, I'll be diving into groupthink and conformity, how the need to conform to others can drive you to answer questions incorrectly, why hardly anyone gives money to homeless people on the subway, why our jury system fails to produce justice so much of the time, and how anonymity is the key to all of these problems. That's coming up next time on Nervous Habits. This has been a very thought provoking, reflective episode of Nervous Habits. I hope that you got something out of it and it's, you know, gave you something to think about while you were. Walking your dog or quarantine while you were quarantined inside with coronavirus, be responsible. Don't, you know, social distancing, don't go outside and don't let your dog <laughs> lick your face. And your um, guys, make sure to uh, send me your thoughts to nervous habits, at gmail.com on Twitter at nervous habits, underscore on Instagram, nervoushabitspodcast podcast. Seriously. Let me know what you think about some of the, the topics that we discussed today, particularly, whether or not you think religion and science are incompatible and let me know what you would say if you were at a bar with Jerry Coyne and he told you that we live in a purposeless physical universe and human life is accidental how you would respond to that you know what what the alternatives might be what the silver lining might be or maybe maybe he's right and we're all screwed either way <laughs> thanks for listening and stay nervous or stay religious take care